Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg and this is Between the Lines. In 2006, David Goldblatt published The Ball is Round, a global history of football. It was an extensive study of the beautiful game stretching back from its very origins into the early years of the 21st century. Job done, or not as the case may be. The last decade or so has witnessed seismic shifts in football from its economic transformation and politicisation through to the emergence of China and United States on the global stage. So, David went back to the drawing board and the result is another book another epic study of the beautiful game by the best football historian in the business. The age of football, the global game in the 21st century is out now and fits inside a Christmas stocking, so long as it's a very big stocking. This is a live event recorded at Waterstones in Glasgow where myself and David chatted about the process of completing such an epic project. My name is Martin Gregg. I'm from a sports publisher's called Backpage. I'll be your host for this evening. Delighted to welcome eminent football historian David Goldblatt to Glasgow. Thank you all for coming out on such a miserable, rainy night. Firstly, David, we'll just start by talking about the premise for this book because this is a kind of sequel to The Ball is Round, which was published in 2006. Can you tell us why you decided to revisit at this time and and do the, the part two, if you like? As Martin said, I wrote The Ball is Round and published it in 2006. And for those of you who have not encountered it, it's a thousand page history, cultural, economic, political, technological, sporting of global football. And you would think, you know, as I did at the time, right, job done, not doing that again. And it occurs, occurred to me at a number of moments over the last few years that the story really hasn't ended. Three or four sort of uh, things really occur. The first is, you know, if we've been having the conversation 20 years ago, um, the four most populous nations on the planet, China, India, the United States and Indonesia, um, all had sporting cultures in which football was at best peripheral, uh, absent even in some ways. And now in uh, 2019, football is um, either central or becoming a central element of those sporting and popular cultures. You know, we're in a situation where the Chinese Communist Party's uh, Central Committee has decided that it is a matter of vital national interest that the country achieves Xi Jinping's three wishes, which sounds like soup, but is actually his uh, intention that China should qualify for, host and win the World Cup by 2050. And... um, As I'm sure you're aware, when the Chinese Communist Party decides something's going to happen, you better watch out. Um, And indeed, you know, basketball appeared that it was going to be the game of Chinese modernity. But these days, football seems to be the dominant and most important game in China. In the United States, MLS was only six years old. It was a very minor feature of the sporting uh, landscape in the United States. And now it is approaching 
um, at least in uh, popular culture, uh, it's it's pretty close to baseball, I would say. We're getting up to number three. I mean, just to give a, a, an example of that, I teach a course on, uh, at a, I teach at a uh, university in Los Angeles, and uh, I offer a course on post-war British cultural history. Come and study Glastonbury, Punk, Mary Quant, whatever. Five kids show up. But for the global history of football, I could have 200. I mean, I'm literally fighting them off at the door. I say to them, do you know who John Lennon is? They look at me blankly. But if you ask them where Huddersfield is, they know. And of course, America has, by you know, a very long way, the most developed women's football culture anywhere in the world. More women playing football in the United States than the rest of the world pretty much put together. MLS is now attracting crowds um, that exceed those that attend uh, the Brazilian National Championship. Just let that sink in for a moment. MLS is getting higher average attendance than the Brazilian Campeonato. And, of course, 20% of America approximately are now Latino, and they are not interested in baseball. I mean, they're not that interested in MLS either. I mean, it's interesting that the most uh, viewed um, football league in the United States is Liga MX by some distance. Um, but nonetheless, central now to the sporting culture of the nation. Indonesia, which was... Pff, who knew from Indonesian football 25 years ago, now, even though the Indonesian national team is by all accounts absolutely appalling, you're still talking about television audiences of 100 million when they play. And the most developed football ultra culture outside of Europe, completely extraordinary events going on. And even in India, where cricket is king still, um, football is now a um, rapidly growing social and cultural force. I have an awful lot of Indians in my class in uh, the United States. They've all been sent there by their folks to do um, you know, business or engineering, and they all hate it. And uh, my course is like, oh, escape. And of course, the situation in India now is that any old Dalit could be watching football on a... Um, on a flat screen television in rural Bihar. So if you want something that distinguishes you as an urban, globalised cosmopolitan, you do not watch cricket. None of these kids do. They're all watching the Premier League. So that needed to be taken account of. Social media, I don't mention Twitter in the ball is round. I mean, it had only just, in fact, been created. The world changes again. And above all, we've had the most gigantic global capitalist crisis, uh, the consequences of which we are all living with and which is reflected very closely, I think, in the experience of football in the last 10 years. So you wrap all of that up and it's like, okay, back to the well. We're going to do this from the year 2000 and see if we can paint a comprehensible picture, not only of the transformation of the sport, but the transformation of the global economy and its politics. And that was the ambition. I do want to reflect a little bit on the kind of process of, of piecing this book together. Obviously, it's a extensively researched book. Can you tell us a little bit about the level of reading, the level of research that you had to conduct for this? You were saying you had to read so much more um, to cover the last 15 years than you, you did for the previous book and the 150 years that you covered in that one. Can you just expand a little bit more in that? So the volume of material available in this world on football is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, made worse by the fact that Google Translate now does a pretty good job on quite a lot of things. So it's not just in English, you know, I've like my Google Translate work on Portuguese or, you know, whatever language is huge. I mean, the academic literature, which was in its infancy in the early 2000s, I mean, you know, it's 10 times the size 
um, that it was then. Um, the uh, amount of information being produced on the business side by consultancies, by accountancy firms of all kind, has multiplied out of all proportion. The quality of the journalism that is available in uh, not just English but across the world is immensely superior. And then you've got, you know, Twitter, blogs, fan chat rooms, etc. Uh, I mean, I was saying to Martin, I'll never get back the two days that I spent trawling through the Twitter accounts of every head of state in sub-Saharan Africa to see if they supported a Premier League team. And the truth of it is that over half of them have a declared preference for a Premier League team. Best news of all is that Robert Mugabe was a Chelsea supporter. <laughs> and then that's before we get to YouTube. So, you know, in the past, you'd have read about some extraordinary goal or some extraordinary moment. You can't see it. Now I'm reading, oh, in Vietnam, there's a, um, a dissident group called Non-UFC who used to try and meet in cafes and then always got moved on by the authorities or had the cafe closed down. So they form a football club. Non-UFC, the U refers to the shape that the Chinese draw of their sovereignty in the South China Sea. And obviously Vietnamese nationalists have completely got the hump with that. The FC, testament to the globalization of the English language, stands for either football club or fuck China. And um, they now meet on um, football pitches. And uh, I was reading about them, and they were saying, you know, and sometimes the police come and break up, you know, the game in the middle. I thought, hmm, I wonder if I can see that. Non-UFC into YouTube, bang. I actually watched the Chinese secret police break up this guy's football game somewhere in kind of the suburbs of Hanoi. So multiply that a thousand times. Um, I mean, as to method, I mean, my method was... I knew this was going to be an encyclopedic book. You know, I knew I was basically going to go round the world. So I'm slightly old school for all of this talk of the digital age is that I print a lot of stuff up. So I basically created a box file system for every single country on this planet. And I filled those box files with academic articles, with material, etc., my own notes and so on. Um, and uh, I have subdivisions. I have plastic folders which subdivide each country into, and it basically gets down to the level of paragraphs. So almost every paragraph in this book, there is a corresponding kind of plastic wallet full of stuff that I have uh, extracted thing, uh, things from. And three weeks ago, I had the delicious and amazing pleasure of going, right, Goldblatt, it's time to recycle this lot because you're not using it again. And I had three and a half meters of paper. Three and a half, think about it, it's like insane. So that was an estate cart down to the recycling center and what a pleasure it was. So that, plus I did a certain amount of traveling. I mean, I've probably seen football now in about 45 countries. And for this uh, book, I went to places I'd never been. So I did Nigeria. I spent an extraordinary 10 days in Lagos. I saw more Premier League football in that 10 days than I would ever, ever watch if I was in England. I spent my time with the official Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Club, Lagos Branch, official Arsenal Supporters Club, Lagos Branch, official Manchester United and official Chelsea. Uh, I went hungry uh, and managed to meet Victor Orban, who you're uh, probably familiar with, a man more obsessed with football than me. Uh, he proudly told me that in 1998, the very first foreign trip that he made as Prime Minister of Hungary 
was to the final of the World Cup in France. He's been at every single World Cup final and every single Champions League final since. He also has a stadium worth about $100 million that uh, he had built to his greater glory. So travelling, reading, watching, organising, I suppose, are my watchwords here. That's a really interesting insight, and you were kind of talking about that academic approach you take to research and all that sort of stuff, but uh, the other side of it is really important as well, because I think that's that's a key to a lot of your writing, that it doesn't come across as like an academic study, and you obviously see that process of travel and immersion in these football cultures, speaking to people, meeting people, that is the key that elevates the, a lot of the stuff that you do. I try and do it from both ends. So I'm really interested in the macro, you know, and how does this game in any country fit into bigger political strategies? How is it part of the economic structure of the country? And there's never a problem sorting that out. But yeah, I'm always looking for the human stories. I'm always looking for the bizarre. I'm always just eternally fascinated why people think this game matters. I mean, that's the bottom line. It's like, we all know it's just the game. Right? And yet it becomes invested all over the world in innumerable different ways with identity, meaning, purpose. And I find that absolutely, you know, that's what really floats my boat is trying to get to the bottom of that and then connect it back up to those bigger changes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before we continue with this episode of Between the Lines, I want to tell you about two books from Backpage that you might be interested in. Firstly, Pep City, The Making of a Super Team by Lou Martin and Paul Ballas, two Spanish sports writers who have been embedded with Manchester City since Pep Guardiola arrived in the summer of 2016. No other journalist has had this kind of access and the result is a behind-the-scenes account of how Guardiola's winning machine was built and what it takes to keep it on the road. This features exclusive interviews with everyone from Pep and the strategists on the board to the superstar players who won all there is to win in English football last season. And if you're interested in what the next level in the football arms race might look like, check out Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All by Ben Reiter, who has appeared in this series of Between the Lines, interviewed by Neil about this book. Even if you don't speak baseball, if you're interested in where any pro sport, and especially elite football, is heading in terms of recruitment, 
data and optimization, then you need to read this inside account of how the worst team in baseball were turned into serial winners thanks to a strategic revolution. It's Moneyball, the next chapter. Pep City, the making of a super team, and Astro Ball, the new way to win it all, out now from Backpage. If you were, you know, reflecting on kind of key characters in the book, people that spring to mind when you think about this book, encounters that you had, who, who would you alight on? Is there anyone that comes out of the book that sticks in your memory more than others? I think the moment for me that sticks out is my time in Africa. And um, I spent, I mean, there are two really extraordinary encounters for me. One is uh, in Mathari, which is the largest slum in Nairobi. Uh, which is home to the Mathari Youth Sports Association. And they were born uh, about 25 years ago when a man called Bob Munro, who was a UN worker, uh, was asked by a bunch of kids, um, would, he referee, would you referee our game, mister? And he said, I will, but we've got to clear all the rubbish up from this patch of earth because Mathari, no one's collected the rubbish for about 100 years, so you can imagine what it looks like. Uh, and there's no sewage. A lot of flying toilets, as they call it. And uh, from that encounter, the Mathari Youth Sports Association is born. And it now offers regular football leagues and regular football training to 25,000 kids, 5,000 of them young women. And the deal is that it's one point for a draw, three points for a win, and six points for doing your environmental clear-up. Mathari provide the shovels, the gloves, and the uh, skips and the kids provide the labour. And you've got to show up with uh, eight out of 11 of your squad and your captain or you don't get your six points. And they have now become the municipal waste disposal system for much of Nairobi. And off the back of that, the backbone of civil society with extraordinary educational and health projects. And their adult team, Mathari United, has actually won the Kenyan League and been the force in anti-corruption politics. In, um, uh, and so hanging out with those guys was just totally amazing. And I saw them win the league at Ngoza Sugar, which was a sugar refinery, basically, in the east of the country in the middle of nowhere. And that was just mind-bending. And then... I also went to a place called Luzira, which is um, the maximum security prison in Uganda, built by the British to ha um, basically bang up all the uh, anti-colonial politicians of the era. After independence, Idi Amin takes it over, and it consequently has a reputation as, you know, it's a hellhole. It's the worst prison in the world. And it is now, uh, I can say, it is certainly the most humane and brilliant prison in Africa, possibly the world. I mean, this place, they've got no money and they have a recidivism rate that, you know, the Swedes or the Danes or the Dutch would be proud of. An educational system inside a prison that puts anything in Britain to complete shame. And I've been inside shots in a few prisons here, so I do sort of vaguely know what I'm talking about. And what, what makes this prison tick? I mean, lots of things make it tick, and there have been lots of reasons for its transformation. But at the core of it is the Upper Prison Sports Association, founded as a democratic constitutional organisation by the guards and the inmates. And it is a fully functioning football association. It runs a player registration system. It runs the referees committee. It raises sponsorship for tournaments. My God, they've even got a transfer window inside this prison. 
and there are 10 football teams inside the prison. There's Barcelona, Manchester United, inevitably. Rather bizarrely, there's Hanover 96. I never quite got to the bottom of that. Um, and it is like, how can I put it? It's sort of um, a peculiar post-colonial version of the public school ethos where, you know, football and the playing of games is meant to forge character. But instead of creating a ruling class to go and run the empire, it's about creating a transparent, non-corrupt organisation in Africa. And it is absolutely amazing and I spent a week inside this prison I mean I've spent a lot of time in American prisons as well teaching and they are scary as fuck I walked around this prison for a week no guards I have never you know I felt as safe there as I felt anywhere and it's football that makes it happen and that just completely blew me away in terms of the processing of the travel the research the writing how long did this book take from like the conception of the idea to to delivering it to the publisher so I kind of, four years, I would say. But, I mean, I, it's everything I've learned since I wrote The Ball Is Round, you know, and I did a lot of work. Uh, immediately after The Ball Is Round, I did a lot of work for BBC World Service. I was lucky enough, that's how I got to Mathari, for example. And I went to Israel and, you know, all sorts of places to see football. So uh, it's everything I learned from that. And then four years of, um, forgive my language, breaking work I mean it was really bloody hard and uh, I got really serious RSI in my armpit I now know every single tendon of my body that controls a mouse you know I'm not looking for pity here but I will it pretty came close to breaking me actually it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, the ball is round was hard, but I was like 14 years younger. What I'd say, guys, is enjoy this because you won't be seeing another one of these too soon. Uh, it was, yeah, four years and, you know, that was, that was my life, basically. I was teaching, you know, I did my teaching to actually pay the bills because obviously writing books doesn't pay the bills. But yeah, that was, it was life. Uh, and, you know, towards the end, I mean, the last like year, I was basically writing for six or seven hours every single day. It was also very exhilarating. I mean, you know, it's like to be able to command that amount of material, you know, and to be able to, like, have your say and to put it into the round is also, you know, that's sort of what I live for as well. So um, it was bloody hard work, but it was also sort of, you know, deeply and profoundly rewarding at the same time. It's lovely to hear that because I've got a kind of old-fashioned view of what a book should be and you do like to think that a pound of flesh has gone into books and I think in so many ways now it doesn't. You know, I think there's a lot of books that are written around full-time jobs by, you know, working journalists and they don't feel like the, the effort has gone into them, you know. Do you know what I mean by that? That kind of sense of what a book should be. Yeah, I mean, you know, books should be thoroughly and deeply researched and deeply felt. I mean, I sort of partly wrote the book because uh, with a mounting sense of anger um, in that, you know, football has long been colonised by economic and political forces, right? It's been commercial for a long time. You know, Mussolini ran the 34 World Cup. The Junta ran the 78 World Cup. This is not news. But if this book does have a sort of central concern, it is that the scale 
of um, colonization by economic actors and political actors of the game around the world is now at historically unprecedented levels. And I have an issue with that. Uh, I don't think nation states should run football clubs. Um, certainly not own ones, you know, uh, and they, uh, I think the economics has just got completely out of hand uh, and with very negative consequences in many ways. So, you know, I wanted my say because it sort of matters to me. Tapping into that kind of sense of anger and injustice that you feel about that colonisation, I guess that's part of what gets you to the end of four years, is it? Definitely. That's what sort of got me there is like, yeah, you want to have your say. I mean, and one hopes that eventually it will have some consequence in the rest of the world. I also sort of wanted to be able to alert as many people in the world to all the good stuff that's going on as well, the Matharis and the Luziras, because alongside the fact that politicians around the world have clocked that there's a lot of um, mileage in getting engaged with football, they're not the only people, so that you have a kind of nascent global social movement um, around anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-commercialism, uh, fan ownership, etc., um, that is, you know, amazing and impressive and needs to be... I think we've all heard a little bit about that, but to actually see the scale of it and the fact that it's truly global seems to me an important... That's a little contribution I can make. I mean, I do want to talk about this kind of hollowing out of certain football cultures that you reflect on in the book, which is a really interesting part of it. But I think it's also fair to touch on the fact that this is something of a golden age for football. You I mean, football at the very elite level is unbelievably good. The Champions League, I think, has been largely you know, a very positive thing in terms of raising the standard of football. Some of the games I've seen in the last three or four seasons of the Champions League have been some of the best games of football I've ever seen. So can you reflect a bit on the fact that we are living in a golden age of football at that very elite level so I mean I think the football economy because it's so globalised works like the rest of the global economy which means um, you've got an incredible concentration of capital technology, talent both coaching and players at the highest level and the football is absolutely the best that's ever been played I mean I know you can only, teams of old you know they didn't have the technology, they didn't have the training facilities but you know, if you put Brazil 1970 out against currently Manchester City, I think they'd be dead in about 15 minutes, particularly Tostal, who did like a fag at half-time. You know, the magical Magyars would not live for two seconds with Liverpool. And then the football is, you know, I mean, you all watch it. I mean, last year's Champion League semi-finals, does it get any better? Not just in terms of the technical brilliance of the football, but, I mean, you know, the narratives were completely incredible as well. Um, and, you know, I'm a consumer of football as well as a critic. Um, and it is absolutely the best. No doubt about it. It's stunning. I mean, the sort of, you know, people's touch, people's anticipation, people's teamwork, the quality of the pitch they're playing on, the amount of sprinting they're doing. I mean, even compared to the Premier League 15 years ago, and we can do this through Opta statistics, people are doing twice as many high-intensity sprints in 90 minutes as they were just 15 years ago. I mean, that's like just unbelievable. I mean, the goalkeeping is incredible. Um, but this comes at a price in the same way that the concentration of wealth in other spheres. You know, there are winners and losers in globalisation. And the other side of the coin 
is in Africa, which 30 years ago had a rickety but rich and functioning domestic football scene in which the leading teams like Hearts of Oak in Accra or uh, Inugu Rangers in uh, Nigeria could attract crowds of 60, 70 and 80,000. People queued overnight to get into the big derby games. There was an away fan culture. You had the most fantastic tradition of radio commentary because Africa is a kind of oral storytelling culture. You know, just amazing commentators. And all of that has completely gone. You know, the top two and a half, three thousand African footballers don't play in Africa. And we're not just talking about the people at, you know, PSG or Arsenal. I mean, it's so bad in Africa that, you know, you'll take your chances now in Laos or Cambodia or Indonesia rather than playing at home in Nigeria or Ghana because you're not going to get paid. You know, 80% of African footballers don't have a contract. Uh, 99% of Ghanaian players say that they're paid late or uh, or rarely. Uh, and it's worth noting that, you know, we all think football players, a lot of money, of course. But according to FIFPro, 50% of professional footballers in this world are earning less than $1,000 a month. So, you know, incredible inequalities. And above all, it's the transfer of fan affections because there are 400 million Africans watching the Premier League every single week. And they're not watching African football. I mean, why would they in that context? And the whole tradition of, you know, the culture of going to a game has been lost in many places in Africa. So, and that's not coming back. You know, something has been profound has been lost. And I think this is also true of Latin America, where, okay, you don't see Manchester United shirts on the streets of Buenos Aires. But if you go and watch a game there, there's no talent left in, in the domestic game. You're either very young, very old, or going nowhere. Or you're a rather tubby Paraguayan who seemed to be quite a feature of uh, football over there. And I mean, I was in Argentina uh, in 2017, and, and the spectacle is a shadow of its former self. And the gap is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And again, something you know, culturally, institutionally and sportingly is being lost in the process. And that is, you know, yeah, winners and losers. And what's your take in Scotland beside a, a giant of the EPL across the border? It seems to have had a, a serious impact in Scottish football culture over the last 15, 20 years as well. Scotland is a loser from globalisation. I mean, once upon a time, you know, Scotland, I mean, you know, before the Premier League, Arrives, you know, the best of English talent considers and comes and plays in Scotland. And uh, the gap between Scottish and English football is much smaller. And certainly we know at an international level, the Scottish men are playing, you know, above themselves and as good as, if not better, in their record than England. And now there are virtually no Scots left in the Premier League. And there were, for a time, there were a lot of Scottish managers. They're disappearing um, as well. And the money that used to come into Scottish football via English football has also dried up. And, you know, you know how much the Scottish Premier League is getting for TV rights. I mean, it's virtually the annual income is about equivalent to two games of the Premier League now in England. You know, if they're not alone. This is what's happened to Irish football as well. I mean, and the other sort of small and medium-sized nations in Europe are all struggling. I mean, I think we saw a final flourish in the first part of the 21st century where at least uh, Celtic and Rangers could make it to a European final. They couldn't win them, but at least they made it. But I find it very hard to imagine now that a Scottish team can get to a final of a European tournament 
in the way that they did. And, you know, let's not even talk about the Scottish men's team, which I'm sure you want to. I mean, I'm just sort of hoping that the Scottish women's football, which does seem to be going, you know, as it is in England, and that's one of the most exciting things, I think, that's happened in the last 20 years, is that women's women's football has exploded. I mean, I think this is a profound and historic shift um, you know, after 150 years of the global game being entirely suffused with masculinity, much of it toxic, finally, finally, that is beginning to change. And in a world where popular culture is where people make their politics, I think that's profound. But yeah, now Scotland's had it very, very tough. And as with Africa, it also is responsible for some of its own problems. I mean, you have a duopoly that then became a monopoly that is, if you're not a supporter of Celtic, is pretty difficult you know it's kind of squeeze the space for everybody else down I mean I really enjoyed it when you know Rangers were down in the fourth division because at least somebody else could win something right you know Hibs I believe won the cup for the first time in like over a century St Johnston actually won something and now it looks like the old order is sort of slowly and tediously reasserting itself and that seems to me a great shame I mean diversity is what makes football interesting to me so I think it's gonna it's it's a long way back for Scotland and I don't think the old order can be recreated thanks to David for this interview and check him out on Twitter at David S Goldblatt the age of football is out now and please check out the rest of this season of Between the Lines the rest of the episodes from this season feature interviews with Ben Writer Oliver Kay Lawrence Donegan Daniel Gray and Hugh McDonald finally if you've enjoyed this please leave a review tell a friend spread the word it's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event so give your friends something to look at like a B&B with an ocean view an endless field of wildflowers or a sunset that needs no filter Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.